previously on The Yellow Car. Do you remember strife in your parents' marriage? I do. I never thought it was a sustainable marriage. What if your dad did do it and you've spent 31 years for nothing? So we have to let the evidence say what happened. And the evidence doesn't show that it was my dad. They were able to see that our suspect's DNA is there and the numbers are good right now and they're actionable right now. Once it's conclusive enough, is your thought that the sheriff's office would reopen the case or what do you expect them to do? What I expect them to do is to pick him up. And, and arrest him. him? Yep, that's what I expect. Before we begin, a warning that this episode contains graphic subject matter. Some people may find it disturbing. The case surrounding Mike Entazari might be one of the most interesting I've investigated. When he went on trial in 1990, he faced a charge of first-degree murder. The case against him was largely based on circumstantial evidence. No one actually saw Mike shoot his estranged wife, Effie Antazari, and there was no direct evidence tying him to the murder. The prosecutor even admitted all of this in his opening statements. Yet Mike received a sentence of 25 years in prison. He served 16. There were so many conflicting stories and theories in the trial from some 30 to 40 witnesses that honestly, it was hard to figure out who to trust. Some may have lied, some may be misremembered, and some just interpreted things differently. But all these differing opinions and statements really made me go back and forth a lot about Mike's guilt or his innocence. You know, I've read through the testimony of the woman who saw the yellow car. Um, but outside of that, the rest is garbage. Because it's a lot of, he said, she said, he, he did it because of this, he didn't do it because of this. It, it was not a fact-based trial. So who do you believe? I'm your host, Ashley Korslund. Welcome to The Yellow Car, a KGW original podcast. This is the beginning of the end. I have a quick update on Pune's progress with her DNA testing. It's now June of 2020. Since I last checked in with her a month ago, she was able to get local authorities to release evidence samples from the crime scene. They sent out a vial of Effie Antazari's blood to the lab Pune is using. Okay, it's Thursday, June 18th, and I think Pune... Has she texted me she wanted to talk, so I'm calling to check in. So I'm, I'm kind of um, anxious, I'm a little nervous, so let's, let's try. Hi, Ashley. Hey, Pune, how's it going? <laughs> Good. Well, um, can okay. I, can I record? <laughs> I just want to let you know I'm recording. Just, oh, okay. If that's okay with you. Yeah, that's fine. So, um, okay, so was today the day you were going to get the update, or what's going on? Yeah, so we requested, I think last time we talked, um, we had requested that they send a sample of my mom's blood to the lab for um, DNA sequencing. Pune had requested the blood sample from the Clark County Sheriff's Office. That's the agency that investigated her mom's murder. The blood has been in the evidence freezer for decades. The problem is that the blood had been pulled out of the freezer and left out of the freezer and left in the bin. 
We, we don't know how that happened. I haven't gotten an explanation of it yet. But nonetheless, then the concern was that it could have degraded to a point where it had no DNA value. Oh, no. Yeah. So Detective Beck It's taken her weeks to get this sample sent to the lab for testing. And there has been a lot of back and forth with officials to make it happen. And I put a rush on it at the lab because, you know, we need to get going. And um, so they received the the blood sample on Tuesday and yesterday they, yesterday afternoon, they said the DNA is no good. So there you have it. All these weeks of working with investigators and waiting, Pune gets news she was not prepared for and definitely didn't want. She says that at some point, and for some reason, her mom's blood sample was taken out of the storage refrigerator at the Clark County Sheriff's Office. Because of that, Pune says, the sample became degraded. I reached out to the Sheriff's Office to find out what happened. A spokesperson told me the blood was stored at industry standards in their evidence refrigerator for years. He said he didn't know how, why, or when the blood sample became degraded, or if it even occurred in their facility. Perhaps it happened when the sample was sent to the lab for testing. At this point, Pune does have some other options for DNA samples from her mom, but that's going to require her to start the whole process again of getting officials to agree to send the evidence to a lab for testing. So for now, I just have to wait to hear back from her on that. When I first started producing this series, I banked on the possibility that there would be audio or video recordings from the trial, maybe in the basement of the courthouse. I knew it might be a long shot given the age of the case, but I thought there was a chance. All right, we're going to call the Criminal Felony Division, which is the phone number that the prosecuting attorney's office gave me. Um, they had told me that I'd have to call this number and they would check an archive box in the basement in another building from their building. And so I started with calling the local courthouse to get all the paperwork on the case and any audio or video files available. Hi, is Kim available? But I hit roadblock after roadblock. I, I agree they should have it. Okay. And archives is different than the building you're in. After getting transferred between at least three different offices, I finally talked to someone who was able to help. So there's like nothing that lives audio or video at anywhere? until she told me everything from the trial had been destroyed years ago. Okay, um, okay. All right, thank you for checking, I appreciate it. Well, that sucks. So apparently they only keep them for 15 years, uh, the audio or video recordings, and then they can destroy them after 15 years. So there are no audio files of the trial which is what I was really banking on. So that is a huge bummer. Dang. Okay, well, on to plan B, which I don't know what that is. I don't have a plan B at this point. I also checked our archives at KGW-TV, thinking that we would have covered a murder trial like this one, and also nothing. Same with our partner radio station. I'm not sure why the case didn't get much media attention back in 1989, but it didn't leave me with a lot to work with here. Thank you. 
Hi. Hi. I need help finding some microfilm from some coverage of the Colombian from 1989 and 1990. Okay. I even went to the local public library. I bet you don't have people asking for microfilm too often. Where I used a microfilm machine to search through old newspaper articles since they weren't digitized back then. There are so many ads. This is funny. The newspaper was a lot bigger back then. Hmm. I noticed that a lot of the articles from the local newspaper, The Colombian, were written by the same reporter. Zoom out. I did call her to see if she would do an interview with me about covering the case, but she understandably told me that because it was so long ago, she didn't really remember anything about it. Then I called at least two dozen trial witnesses, attorneys, and investigators who worked the case. Of the people I could find working phone numbers for, almost all of them didn't respond to my calls or voicemails or told me they didn't want to be interviewed. A few echoed what the newspaper reporter told me. They just didn't remember enough about the case to talk with me. I did eventually track down about a thousand pages of search warrants and detective interviews, and luckily, Pune had one video recording of a witness deposition for trial. She also had 1,300 pages of trial transcripts. So I got to reading, and that's how I learned about the case against Mike Antazari. So it was just a lot of smoke and mirrors, you know. I've asked Pune several times what she thought about her dad's murder trial. I tend not to, I mean, I've read the, the trial transcripts several times. I'm usually quite upset after I read them. She was in college at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, when the trial began, about six hours away in Vancouver. It was January of 1990, less than a year after her mom's death. Pune was able to attend a couple days of the trial in person. One uh, of them was during my dad's testimony. And I thought, you know, I know my dad and I know, you know, we're kind of a lot alike. I, I'm really reserved, like I try not to show too much emotion, in, especially in public. And my dad's a lot like that as well. But I know um, when I watched him in court, I'm like, Dad, you're going to have to. I, I mean, I knew he was really struggling talking and I could kind of tell his voice was quivering and and he was pretty upset about my mom's death. But um, he was being very reserved in the way that he talked. And um, in the end, she says she wasn't surprised by the guilty verdict. Pune feels like detectives had tunnel vision and fell into the trap of looking too quickly at the husband without investigating other potential suspects. I, if you were to talk to the detectives, they would say it's a no brainer. You know, it was a this was a premeditated, highly calculating homicide. She believes investigators should have tracked down the driver of the yellow car seen speeding away from where Effie's body was found in the parking lot. Mike didn't own a yellow car. And I wish the detectives would have agreed to sit down for an interview with me so I could hear their thoughts. But at least I have copies of their reports and their interviews. So let's go back to 1989 and retrace the events of May 1st, the day of the crime. As the sole owner of Best Learning Daycare, Effie Antazari was always up early to get to work and set up for the day. 
On that Monday morning, she was out the door sometime around 6 a.m., maybe a little before or after. No one knows for sure. But we do know that she walked to her car, holding her keys and purse, and was shot before she could even open her car door. Detectives say she was not sexually assaulted, and it didn't appear that robbery was a motive because she was found with $250 cash and credit cards inside her purse. She also still had a gold chain around her neck. A woman who lived in Effie's complex, a nurse named Brenda Chapman, found Effie's body and called 911 at 6.20 a.m. To pin down the time of the murder, detectives interviewed several people at the complex who reported hearing what could have been the gunshot. One couple said they heard it around 5.50 a.m. And Diana, the woman who saw the yellow car, she said she heard the noise around 6 a.m. So it's anyone's guess as to the exact minute of the shooting. Now, as for Mike's whereabouts early that morning, well, that's where things get tricky for his defense. He had no alibi or anyone to vouch for where he was around the same time of the murder. He said he was at home. I'm going to have my colleagues read from the trial transcript where Mike's attorney questions him about his whereabouts the morning of the murder. After you went to bed Sunday night, did you experience any problems while you were sleeping? Yes, on April 30th, I went to bed at night, and around 1 o'clock, I hadn't fallen asleep yet. I experienced chest pain. Had you ever experienced any kind of similar pain before? Yes, about four or five days before, I had experienced chest pain. When that happened, what did you do about it? I immediately went to Providence Hospital. They took regular pressures first, and then EKG tests, and also took some x-rays, and they asked me to follow it up. His attorney then transitions back to the morning of the murder. Before you, after you had the chest pains in bed that night, then what happened? That night, that would be the early morning of May 1st. Right. As I indicated, I had chest pain around 1 a.m. and then I just fell asleep. I fainted almost. What time did you wake up on Monday morning, May 1st? I believe it was around 5 o'clock in the morning I woke up. What was your condition at that time? I didn't have any chest pain, but I was soaked in sweat. What did you do after you got up? The immediate thing that I did was, of course, stripping the sheets and dumping into the machine. Mike goes on to say he then got ready to head to his job in Portland. On his schedule that day, work in the lab at Portland Community College, go to the hospital for an EKG to make sure his heart was okay, and then finish with a dentist appointment in the afternoon. What time would you estimate that you left the house that morning? I would say it was about 6.15, between 6.15 and 6.30 around that time. What car did you take when you left? I took the Honda Accord. What time did you get to PCC, would you estimate? Well, usual driving time from my home to PCC is approximately 30 minutes, maybe 35 or 28. So what time I got to PCC, I didn't look at the watch, yeah, but it would have been about a half hour after I left the house approximately. When he got to the school, Mike said he dropped off his gear in the lab and then got a cup of coffee and a pastry. An employee at the coffee stand testified in trial that Mike bought the coffee around 7.30 or 7.40 that morning. So she's the first person to actually see Mike the day of the murder. 
If we look at the facts here, Effie was shot around 6 a.m., give or take a few minutes. So it's entirely possible that Mike could have gotten up, driven the 2.3 miles to Effie's apartment, which is about a five-minute drive, shot her, and then made it to Portland to have coffee by 7.30. However, the defense interviewed one of Mike's neighbors, who told the court that he saw Mike's red Honda outside the house at 5.53 a.m. That's potentially right in the time frame when Effie was shot. If true, that would have made it really hard for Mike to have committed the crime. But this is where it gets into that he said, she said. The prosecution interviewed a different witness who testified that she, on the other hand, did not recall seeing Mike's car on the street that morning. Here's where Mike's attorney cross-examines her, trying to poke holes in her story. And as far as Mike's cars go, you don't really know what kind of cars Mike has, do you? They're little cars. Do you remember... Often there would be a white or a red one sitting there. Okay. Do you remember telling my investigator that you had a hard time remembering what your car looked like? I've said that in a joke, yes. Now, as far as the morning of May 1st goes, isn't it possible there could have been a car parked down here towards the Antazari residence and you didn't notice it when you drove in that morning? There could have been. Okay, thank you, ma'am. I have no further questions. She couldn't be absolutely positive Mike wasn't home that morning. So who really knows? And there you have it, no clear alibi for Mike, no one to verify where he was from the time he woke up to his arrival at the coffee stand at 7.30. The only person who could have vouched for Mike that morning was his son, Puya, who lived with him. Puya Intazari was just 14 when his mom died and 15 when his dad went on trial. He was just a sophomore in high school. I, for one, can't imagine what that would be like, or how I would react under pressure during questioning from law enforcement or lawyers. So it's hard to fault him for telling several different versions of what he remembered from the day of the crime. But that's what happened. His versions of events ranged from telling detectives that Mike was not home when he got up for school around six that morning. Then he later said his dad was home. And finally, Puya said he didn't know if his dad was home or not. Because of all of this, Puya was required by court order to testify in the trial. So they went after my younger brother uh, unfairly. When Pune talks about this, she gets fired up. So they, they, as soon as my mom was murdered, they put him in a foster home. Uh, and then they picked him up in the foster home. And when they took him to court to testify, before he gets up on the stand, he said several detectives told him that they had found my mom's blood all over my dad. And he needed to start talking. So they really messed him up before he took the stand. And of course, he starts to waffle on his statement of, and I wouldn't say waffle because it's a fact. I mean, he couldn't for certain say that whether my dad was home or not. Um, but nonetheless, that was sufficient enough for them to use that as an excuse to put him in juvenile detention. Pune feels she was also treated unfairly by investigators. I remember reading something about their suspects and I was so excited and I said to my dad, I said, well, that's good. They've got suspects, right? So we're going to find out what happened. And he said, well, 
I think that might be us. Who's us? Like him and I. You. Me. I found no indication in documents that investigators ever classified Pune as an actual suspect, but I did find a few notes from detectives where they found her to be defensive of Mike. They definitely thought I was siding with my dad, and that was a hurdle that I had, um, I struggled to overcome. And there was one particular statement allegedly made by Pune that detectives seemed interested in. An acquaintance of Effie's told investigators that two weeks before the murder, Pune told Effie something to the effect of, if you win in the divorce, you will die. If dad wins, you will lose. Pune denies ever saying this. The first, I think within a couple hours of my mom's homicide, they interviewed this woman and she made a series of allegations, both against my dad and against me. As a matter of fact, they went on to say that I was estranged from my mom. I didn't like my mom. I hadn't seen my mom in a year and a half. And I'd just seen her a week before her homicide. And before that, I was home for my birthday. She took me to Red Robin. So none of the stuff that they said was true, but there was nothing I could do about it. So if the detective noticed any defensiveness, it wasn't, it would have been more frustration as to why aren't you listening to me? You know, I was really trying to help guide them in the right way to at least to look at other possibilities um, in my mom's homicide. Pune felt that it was an outright campaign against her and her dad. And she started getting suspicious about the woman's involvement in Effie's murder. Mike Antazari didn't have a solid alibi for the morning of the crime, but prosecutors pointed to more than just opportunity. They were laser focused on motive. We know Mike and Effie were wrapped up in a lawsuit with Mike's brother over money they allegedly owed him and were going through a contentious divorce with some $500,000 in assets at stake. But even Effie's attorneys told detectives they couldn't recall any threats or violence between the two. At least Effie never confided that in her lawyers. They said the two pretty much ignored each other and left their fighting for court. I would imagine it was hard though for the jury to ignore the witness testimony of a couple named Ken and Teresa Ward. They rented a house from the Antazaris, which was just down the street from where Mike lived. As landlords, Mike and Effie disagreed during their divorce over who would collect the rental income from the wards. Effie got a court order that determined she would get the money. So when Mike showed up at the rental house to collect rent from the wards, things got tense. This is what Teresa Ward told the jury during trial. Did you tell him that a court order said you had to pay money to Effie? Yes. And he still wanted you to pay him? Yes. What did you tell him when he asked you that? We said, we can't do that. We have a court order we honor. What was his attitude? Well, he didn't much care for that. Did you ever have a conversation with Mike and Tazari regarding that situation? Regarding which situation? The rent? The rent payment. Yes, initially when we were telling him what Effie was over there for, and then a couple times after that. Did he ever allude to his divorce situation at all? Yes, he did. Would you tell the jury the substance of that conversation, please? 
He discussed with us that Effie had wanted to divorce him for a while. He asked her to wait until his son was older. She waited for a while, then decided to do it. He explained that in Iran, if a woman comes into the marriage with anything and wants to leave the marriage, she leaves with nothing, and he could have her executed or killed. After Mr. Antizari made that statement to you, what, if anything, did you say? I said, you live in America now, and we don't do things that way here. And what, if anything, did Mr. Antizari do or say? That pretty abruptly ended the conversation, and he left. How did his demeanor or attitude appear as he left? That he didn't much care for what I had to say, and he left. Mike adamantly denied ever saying this to the wards. He instead pointed to a dispute the parties were in at the time. The wards were upset at Mike for not building a fence at their rental house like he had promised. In fact, things got so heated between Mike and the wards that Mike threatened a restraining order against Ken after he showed up several times one night at Mike's house, angrily demanding Mike build the fence. So the ward story of what Mike said about women, divorce, and Iranian culture, Mike claimed it was their way of getting back at him. He felt it was revenge. Another witness called by the prosecution during trial was a man named Glenn Perry. He lived in the same apartment complex as Effie. He told investigators that he had seen Mike's red car at the complex on four different occasions before the murder. Each time was during the early morning hours between 5 and 6 a.m. Now this was big because Mike had always maintained he had never been at Effie's residence. And the admission by Glenn Perry would lead you to think Mike was staking out the complex to monitor what time Effie left for work. But when Mike's defense team presented Perry with a photo lineup of vehicles to identify which car resembled the one he saw, Perry chose a car that was not Mike's. It's hard to disregard some key interviews detectives did with some of Effie and even Mike's family members who believed Mike was responsible for the murder. Mike's own brother, Parvis Antazari, told police he didn't like how Mike treated his family and encouraged Effie to leave him. Parvis didn't know of any physical abuse between the two, but said Effie once confided in him that Mike threatened to kill her. And when detectives asked Parvis who he thought killed his sister-in-law, he said he was sure that Mike did it. Detectives also talked to Effie's nephew, Paimon Kadivi. He told investigators Mike and Effie argued often and that Effie was afraid Mike would do something to her. He also said Mike once told him it would be a sad situation for everyone on Effie's side of the family if they got involved in the divorce. When detectives asked Paymon if he thought Mike could have killed Effie, he said he didn't think Mike was brave enough to kill her by himself, but he knew Mike really hated her. Can we talk a little bit about your cousin? Because that was another thing that I think that was uh, pivotal to their investigation is when you have... To me, these are pretty important admissions from the family. So I asked Pune about it. Brother and nephew coming forward and saying, we think Mike did it. Right. Um, what do you think of all that? Was there just family drama? Did, did your uncle and your cousin just not like your dad? Or why do you think they were so set on saying, we know Mike killed Effie? Well, aside from this particular woman <laughs> telling the police a number of lies, She's referring to the woman I mentioned earlier, Effie's acquaintance, the woman Pune began suspecting in her mom's murder. 
she also went out on an outright campaign right away to to um, folks in the community and my uncle um, by telling everyone that she had knowledge that my dad had uh, killed my mom and that I had told her that my dad was going to kill my mom and that my mom had said, I'm afraid he's going to he's going to kill me and he's going to kill you, too. And um, she's very good <laughs> at not telling the truth. So I think in the absence of any of the facts, they believed her. I'm guessing you haven't talked, uh, spoken to your uncle or your cousin since all of this. Um, I spoke with my cousin briefly, but um, very little, no. Do you think to this day they are still convinced your dad killed Absolutely. your mom? Yeah. Yeah. While some of the family might be convinced, others aren't. And that includes experts in the forensic science field who say the evidence just doesn't match up. This is the beginning of the end. Next time on The Yellow Car. And what were the biggest pieces of the evidence that started to make you maybe think otherwise about Mike's guilt? When there was no blood on the gun and when there was such a controversy about the bullet, it, it didn't make any sense. He says, hey, I saw the suspects at my law firm. Don't you think that's odd? How did the state explain the lack of blowback on the weapon? I don't know that they did. My dad said he had been receiving hang-up phone calls preceding my mom's homicide. And I'm not taking his side, and I'm not against him or for him. I just let the facts do the talking, but you can't be that stupid. The Yellow Car is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures on kgw.com slash the yellow car, as well as on the KGW YouTube page. This show is produced, written, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin. Special thanks to Will Johnson and Reed Redmond at Vault Studios, Will Herman, our Tegna Legal Counsel, Andy Thomas and Mila Mamitsa at KGW, and the KGW management and staff. <laughs>